0: Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Well, I'm going to share some things tonight on this uh, Father's Day. It was uh, several months ago, quite a few months ago, John Neal, who's generally on here, oftentimes on uh, playing the shofar. If Robert is not able to be on, or John and Margie come on and they pray for an hour before the call starts. Uh, John, along with two of his friends, Bob Wolf and Eric Cla- uh, Aaron Clappett, had uh, asked us, Rosemary and me, to speak at a conference they were putting on, and, and so I said yes, and then they assigned me the topic, and uh, I, I don't think I've ever told somebody that I'm speaking for it, I didn't want to speak on what they assigned me, and, but I balked for a while, said, no, I don't want to talk on that, let me talk on this over here, Then they said, okay, and I don't know what happened, whether it was Holy Spirit conviction got to me or guilt or whatever. After a while, I thought, maybe maybe I ought to speak on what I was asked to speak on. So I told him, yeah, I'll, I'll speak on that topic you want me to speak on. So I did. The conference was, I think, three weeks ago on a Saturday. And I spoke. And so it came to Father's Day. And between my wife and my sister and a few others, they said, you're supposed to give that uh, for, for, uh, for, for Father's Day. And my sister thought, well, I'll just put the since there's a videotape of me speaking and singing, put that on. I said, no, 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 no. I'll do it. I want to do it live. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it live with the World Prayer Network family, all of us here together. So I, I had I, I prepared the night before what I was going to speak on. Some people will say, how long did it take you to prepare that sermon? They expect you to take six hours, eight hours, ten hours, twelve hours. I have a standard answer, Jenny. How long did it take you to prepare that sermon? I say, oh, about forty years because that's really the totality of what you put in you're bringing everything to bear into that so the reason I was able to type it out the night before was because it was a journey I'd been on with the Lord uh, for a lot uh, of decades so let me just start by saying years ago I wrote my master's thesis many many years ago and my cousin made fun of my 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 master's thesis here it is right here and he, he, he picked, he, he's a, a cousin who was very close to me. He'd written his, his thesis the year before. And he, he kind of made fun of me and he teased me. He said, Jim, go in the library and take a look at all the master's theses up there. And yours is double the thickness of any of them. You, you, you must be very verbose. And he was razzing me and giving me a hard time. I, I said to my cousin, no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with verbosity. I'm a man of few words. Everybody who knows me knows that, right, wife? And I'm oh a man. Well, I'm not a man of few words, but I said, my but the reason my master's thesis is so sick, so thick is not because I'm verbose and too wordy, it's because the topic I wrote on was the love of God. And the topic is way too expansive. It's God's fault that my my master's thesis is, is as enormous as it, as it is. When you write on a topic like this you're biting off the most expansive topic there is to write about. Now, why did I not want to speak about that at this conference with uh, with my, my friends, John Neal, and his two buddies who asked me to speak? Because I felt there were other people who were much better qualified. What do I mean by that? I have two, I have two friends that are high visibility in ministry. They're awesome. Their ministries are staggering. Their ministries are enormous. I, I mean, they have global contacts and... Uh, Their ministry reach is staggering. Their their ministries would be in the tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars. It's really quite enormous. They're gifted, anointed people. But they share something in common with each other. And that is these two men have a father wound. One of them, when he speaks frequently, he speaks almost always about the treatment he got from his father. It wasn't very good. It's pretty painful to hear, quite frankly. The second one, when he talks, well, the first one's my age, the second one's a little bit older than me. And when he he speaks, he he will bring up repeatedly these words, I never knew my father, I never knew my dad. Uh, he, He was conceived as a result of rape, in fact. And I have seen him on the stage and platforms in front of large crowds, reference that and begin crying. Is that deeply ingrained in him, this, this father wound. He told a group of us recently, we were with him, about 20 or 30 of us were with him in a wonderful private meeting. And he, he told the story as a child, playing on the in dirt, he built a little ranch in, in the dirt, little mud fences as best he could. And he didn't have any toys as a child. He had some small little toy horses and little toy cows, and he set them up. And a kid came by who obviously was a bully and trampled his horses and cows and broke them. And he says, you know what I did? Now most of us would fight back or something. You know, as a young child, somebody breaks your toys. He looked up at him and said, it'll be okay. We'll fix it. It was real quiet in the room when he said that. He says, you know what I did? I wanted a friend. I wanted a friend. I look at my two friends. They, they are, these, these two guys are, are, are powerful in their ministries. And all of us respect them highly. hold them in high esteem. And yet both of them carry a father wound. And that's why I was saying to my friend, John Neal, uh, Terry Clampett, to Bob Wolf, and the guys organized in the, the conference. I said, I, I think you need them or somebody like them to speak on this topic of the issue of the father wound. I'm intrigued by how Billy Graham used to close every prayer. He would close every prayer with the words, our God and our Father. You know, some people can pray our God. Some people can pray our Father. But it doesn't seem like everybody's able to put the two together and say, our God and our Father. Let me, let me take you back to my master's thesis. What was it all about, this, this, this book, this thick book? It was 182 pages. Frankly, it could have been many more on this topic. I I did a comparison study of the Hebrew word Chesed in Hosea compared to Agape in the writings of Paul in the New Testament. For my purposes right now, I'm going to want to refer to Paul's writings and to the word Agape. And By the way, I later took that document, my, my master's thesis, and put it into this form with a cover on it. And uh, let's see. I'm trying to get it to look. The, yeah, there we go. Go further back. I'm not sure what's wrong with my camera here right now, but it's "God Will Use You" is the title of it, and it is available if you go to World Prayer Network. Well, we can't get it. World Prayer Network. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. Go to WellversedWorld.org, and this book, which you cannot see right now, <laughs> is available. Is available there. "God Will Use You" is is the title title of it. And all I'm saying is available in there, if you like academic that's an academic work, if you like that kind of thing. But let me just tell you what I learned about the nature of God's love in the writings of Paul, who wrote half the New Testament almost. The first thing about this word agape is it's spontaneous. Now, what do I mean by that? It means it's not motivated by what it sees in the recipient of that love. Rewind that. It's unmotivated by what it sees in the recipient of that love. So if if a guy in high school sees a pretty girl walk by and says, whoa, I'd like to ask her out for a date, that's not agape love. He's seeing something in her that he wants from her. In other words, he sees her beauty in this case. Or if a guy goes to the store, and says, man, I want to buy that red convertible, that's not agape love. He's seeing something for what he can get back uh, from it. Or if you're hungry and you pick up chocolate pie, it took me out for Father's Day today. And I said, man, there was day I had a chocolate pie in that place. And, and and so I watched my weight so carefully by eating chocolate pie, I had chocolate pie. You're loving it. <laughs> <laughs> that would not be a spontaneous agape love. I love that pie for what I could get out of it. And I certainly did and enjoyed it. So agape love is when you love something that is. Totally unattractive in terms of anything you're able to get back from it. Second thing about agape love, I learned the writings of Paul that God is the initiator. That agape love is the initiator. In other words, the, the, the love relationship we have God, God initiates with us. He initiates the human contact. We don't initiate with God. He initiates with us. He came seeking for us. Now, there is a way we can reciprocate, we can respond, not the way you might think. We'll get to that in a moment. There's a way we respond, but God is the one. It's sparked by God. It's started by God. He's the one that initiates. God agapes us. He reaches out to us. That's the second thing from from Paul's writing. The third thing is agape is profoundly creative. It creates value in whoever's the recipient of it. God's not, love is not impressed by any kind of worthiness of the recipient rewind that god's love is not impressed by any kind of worthiness of the recipient he he creates value in the person by virtue of loving them god loves sinful people but by loving them agape is a creative value principle it creates value in the person who receives that love now let me let me just give an illustration Two illustrations, they're kind of embarrassing because they focus on me, but where this can be illustrated. Anyway, one time I was up in uh, Orange County, north of here. We live in San Diego, up in the LA area, Los Angeles area in Orange County for a meeting. It was a meeting of the Republican Party. I got invited to it. I didn't know anybody there. I, I don't know exactly why I went. Michael Steele was gonna be there. He was at the time the head of the GOP. And I thought it'd be cool to meet him. somebody called me and said, hey, Jim, want you to come meet him. I was okay, well, I got there. And he was in a small room first, and then was going to go in a large room and greet the larger people. So there was a small group here meeting him. But once he came, he got there late. And once he got there, everybody just jammed around him. Everybody wanted to meet him. And I kind of hung back because I didn't know him, and he didn't know me. So I was hanging back, and I thought, well, I'll just wait. I'll go into the big room and listen to him in there and not even worry about trying to get to him because there were so many people jammed around him. But there was a lady in charge of the meeting. She said, no, come with me. She grabbed me. And she marched me right through the crowd, right up to him. And I was ready to greet him when he suddenly said, oh, Jim Garlow, I'm glad to meet you. Well, he had never heard of me. He had never met me. So I realized he'd been tipped off by somebody. He said, oh, man, thank you for what you did on Proposition 8. I didn't know he even knew about it. Proposition 8 was defending marriage between one man, one woman in California back in 2008. We had just won the battle by a vote of 52.3%, a miracle in California. We had just won it. And so he was thanking me for my particular role in it. So I realized then they had tipped him off kind of who I was and to thank me. And, and so I was, I was very grateful. And that was it. I went in the big room, or now it was a bigger crowd, much bigger crowd, several hundred people. And they weren't, we didn't have chairs. They were all standing. And he stood up on a little elevated platform and began to speak. He wasn't into his talk more than five, six, seven, eight minutes. When he said, You know what we should do? We should do what Jim Garlow did. I was just stunned. But he did it on Proposition Eight. That's what you want to do. Here's what he did. But look, he took off all the stuff that I didn't know he knew. And I didn't know anybody in the case. He said, Jim Garlow, raise your hand. So I raised my hand. I did not know one person in that crowd except him, I just met him. And all of a sudden, I became a hero. Everybody wanted to meet me. Why? Because one person in charge, high visibility, focused on me, called my attention, and he, quote, created value within me in terms of all the other people in the room. Second illustration, and then we're going to go to how how God does that. I was in a meeting in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump was running for office at that time. He showed up. There was, I don't know, about 500 people in the room or so. And uh, a buddy of mine named Richard Lee, he's a pastor in Atlanta. We we slipped around the side of the room to listen to Donald Trump, and he was talking, candidate Donald Trump at that time, and all of a sudden he says, "and, and uh, I want to welcome you." And I see Richard Lee's in the room. I nudged my buddy. and said, "Hey, he's called on you. How cool is that?" And I was all excited. And he said, and then Jim Garlow's in the room. I was shocked. I realized Richard and I, neither one knew him. We had we met him right after that, but I, at that time, I'd never met him. Whoever set it up, set him up to say that. But all of a sudden, everybody thought Richard Lee and Jim Carmel were so important because Donald Trump called us his friends. All I'm saying is if if that happens in a room because of Michael Steele or Donald Trump, think what it is when God, God, the creator of the whole universe, he looks at you and he says, that's my son. That's, That's my daughter. I I love him. I love her. The very fact that God loves you and focuses on you creates value within you. If there is nothing else that affirms value within you in all of your life, know that God's agape love for you is a value creator in and of itself. Now, when I was writing this master's thesis that I've spoken of several times by now, I was in the midst of writing that. I was in a dorm room <clears throat> during the summertime. I asked the college <clears throat> for permission to stay in my room and, uh, and, and to just rent that one room for the rest of the summer while the whole rest of the dorm was empty. And they granted me permission to do that. had a little small, small little apartment on the first floor of that uh, three-store dormitory. And they said, sure, you can stay in there. And so I did. And so I was alone in this big building. It was totally empty and dark, except my one room there for the summer months. And I wrote all summer. And as I began to read all this on the love of God, I got to tell you, I would, as back in the day of the typewriters, the old typewriters, no computers, I I would break down and begin crying. Uh, Let me just call it what it is, weeping. I would weep in the dorm room. Because I'd be so consumed and so overcome with the reality of God's love. He didn't love me because of me, which took all the pressure off of me. He actually loved me in spite of me. And that being a recipient of his love meant that in and of itself, I had value to him and value, period, because of that. I later went on to Asbury Seminary. That was at Southern Nazarene University where that happened in Oklahoma City. went on to Asbury Seminary and then to Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey. While I was at Princeton Seminary, uh, uh, there was only one faculty member uh, at the seminary at that time who was an evangelical. Later, there was another one who had an encounter, an incredible encounter, and he became evangelical. An All the rest were what would be called liberal, white way leftist or liberal in their theology. The student body was growing at that time in terms of evangelicals. So it was estimated by some, maybe as a third, maybe as many as a third of the student body was evangelical. And there was, on the part of some professors, one in particular that I had, there was a hostility towards those of us as evangelicals there. And so you would operate under the cover, by that under the radar. You didn't let people, you didn't let the professor know exactly who who you were or where you stood. Uh, on issues one day one of the professors was mocking evangelicals and he said think of how self-centered those evangelicals are you know what they sing they have a hymn they sing they go and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me i am his own he was mocking the song saying we were so egocentric to sing such a song as he walks with me. there's one student up towards the front of the room who raised his hand. Professor called him and says, yes. Now he was an evangelical himself, but he didn't reveal it. He talked about the evangelicals as they, rather than himself. He says, maybe what they mean when they say that is not, he walks with me. He talks with me and he tells me, I am his own. Maybe what they mean as, And he would walk with me. He would talk with me. And he would tell me that I am his own. You see the difference? One was putting emphasis on me, self-centered. The other one is God, God would love me. How could this be? The professor's response in that particular moment was this. Total dead man, no affect. He just stared at the guy, long pause. And then he went on. Why? Because he didn't have an answer. Because it is astounding that God would love me. God would walk with me. And he would tell him, me, I am his own. How is that possible? Fourth characteristics agape, in Paul's writing, is this direction is always from God to us. We say, oh, I love God. No, you don't agape God. God agapes you. You know why you don't agape God? Because you can't love him spontaneously. You can't love him because there's not something to merit it. You you, you love him because what he is, what he brings to you, what he does for you. you. So you can't love him with agape love. Now, there is a response back to God, but it's not agape love. We say that, but that's not really the evidence. He agape by definition. This is this is love that's unmotivated by what it can get out of something. And so we have the incapacity to love him with agape love. He loves us with agape love, but we can't love him back with that same agape love based on the definitions. Why? Because agape love is spontaneous. It's not motivated by anything it can get out of. What do we love God for? Well, a lot of things. One thing: we want to be forgiven our sins. That's a good motivation. But that's not agape love. We want to be set free from having to go to hell. We want to go to heaven. We've got a lot of motivation. Now, those are good motivations. They're not bad at all. That's just not the definition of agape, of agape love. Uh, agape love creates value. We can't create more value in God. Agape love is initiated there. We're, we're not the initiator. He's the initiator of love to us. So what do we call, if, if he agapes us, we don't agape him. What do we call that response back then? Paul says he loves, agape loves us. Our response is faith. Our response is trust. Our response is obedience. In fact, I think it's too cheesy for people to say, I love God. No, obey him. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me, oh, I love God. I love God. I'll put a bumper sticker. I'm going to love God. No, no, no. Obey him. That's his love language. Yeah. Why? You, you yeah. can come, come no, no, I just <laughs> want to agree because they have. this is God's love language. Some, some people, it's gifts or personal attention or conversation but god's love language is obedience. by the way just (laughs) for the record my wife is a better preacher any day than i am am. oh yes she is yes she is she's 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 phenomenal well i'll I'll run on here there's a place there's a place no by all means there's a place you rosemary's been to israel 71 times there's a place you always take us on the tours sure am i pronouncing right shorashim Shoreshim. shorashim in jerusalem means roots in the old city yeah and it's one of my favorite places. It's a tiny little store, it's a little bookstore and a lot, a lot of other supplies. It just got the things in there. All kinds of anything Jewish, biblical, Jewish. There are there. two brothers who run it, and one lectures and speaks. The, they have little plastic chairs, little small chairs. They spread all over the room and they can jam about 60 of us, or just jammed in around all these books and everything. It's very, very packed. First time I went in there, I was tired. we have been traveling for a lot of days. we get up early on these tours. we go to bed late. I thought, oh, boy, what's this? I was sitting there, started listening to this guy. and went, wow, wow, wow. Now, he's still, the, shore, the, the store owner still remembers this. All of a sudden, I stood up because I couldn't see him. Where I stood up and peered around the books to see this guy. He remembers me doing that. Here's, that's back in 2014 that this happened. He still remembers that occurring. What did he say that so, so grabbed me? And still it still gets to me this day. He said, I know what you Christians say about us. He says, you say you have grace. And you say, oh, you Jews have law. And you have all these laws and commandments.' How terrible, how unfortunate. You have to try to obey all these commandments. How unfortunate you Jews are. And then he said, no, we love our God. We love his commandments. We love honoring him. This is so good that we have the privilege of loving our God. We honor his commandments. We want to obey his commandments. Every time he comes to that part in the talk, I I just feel convicted. Let me just say, we, we don't agape God. There is a role for us. Our role is faith, obedience, trust in him. Now, there is a way we do get to express agape. Let me make it clear this way. It's called conduited love. What do I mean by that? Here comes God's love to us. And picture a plumber's elbow. A plumber's elbow. It gets conduited right through us from him to others. Now that you can do. You can love other people with an agape love if you have no motivation of trying to get back something for what you are loving for your love for them. If you're not loving them for who they are, if you're not loving them for what you can get back from them, but you're loving them totally with complete abandonment and no motivation of trying to get something back from that relationship, that is agape love. And it flows from God to you, through you, and that agape love where you have no particular benefit. It can be spontaneous. It can be sparked by you. It can be initiated by you. And as you reflect God's love, agape love to other people, it has a creative force to it. It creates value in the recipient of the love that you channel from God to other people. So there is a way we can express agape love, just not to Him. Agape love we express it to other people. And I know I know that John talks about loving God, etc. other some other writers do. I'm talking about specifically how Paul uses this term agape and give us the meaning. He goes on to say, this agape love is the only thing that's eternal. First Corinthians thirteen. We have faith, hope, and love. Hey, they're pretty cool things. Faith, hope, and love. But one is eternal. Love lasts. Paul writes in another place to the Church of Ephesus in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. He talks about, does he say the fruits of the Spirit? No. You'd think he would because he's talking about joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You would think he'd be talking about fruits, plural, but he's not he's talking about singular fruit what does he mean by that he named a bunch of them why would he call it fruit because he's talking about the fruit is love agape from agape comes all of the rest of this the fruit of the spirit is one thing love and from the love comes the joy everything flows out of it joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control one night many years ago, my son is—I uh, have two boys two, two, two daughters, and two daughters—and my uh, uh, oldest son, when he was dating in it was in high school, he came home from a date, and I was about eleven o'clock in the evening. And and when I was growing up in my home, if I came home from a date, uh, we sat around and I talked with my parents for a while. Uh, I didn't just just charge off to bed. We visited as a family. We were always tight as a family. And so that policy was carried over to my kids. And so when they had dates, they got home. We sat and visited. We talked about the date, et cetera. But one time Josh came home from a date. I heard his car come in, the garage door go up. and I could hear it go down. And he came down the hallway. And he just didn't say, good night, dad, and go. He came on into my, I was still in my study. My, I'm a night person. So I was there at my desk working away on my computer. And he came in and leaned against the wall. And we started talking. And we kept talking for a while. Pretty soon he just, as, as only a, a high school kid can do, he just slid his back down the wall until his buttocks were on the floor, and he was just sitting there on the floor, and we, we talked for about 45 minutes. And when he got up to go to, about 45 minutes later, he went to his room. I realized, man, he's, uh, this, is, this, this relationship has switched from just purely father-son. These are two friends, two adult male friends. talking. I realized there was a level of friendship that have been established. A few months later, I was on an airplane. I remember right where I was sitting in the plane when suddenly I felt the Holy Spirit say so strongly, that new relationship you have with Joshua, that's what I've always longed for to have with you. When I heard that, I was so convicted. I thought, okay, Lord, now what does that look like? I was hugely impacted later by Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. But we're adopted by God. Now, I understand that language because my late wife and I, uh, she passed away 10 years ago, nine years ago. My late wife and I, uh, we we adopted four children, two sons and two daughters. So I understand the nature of adoption. We're, We're adopted by him. We're called the sons of God. And it's not a manipulation of scripture to say, and uh, generically that means the daughters of God as well. We're called the children of God, other places. We're called fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, Christ is our elder brother, and we're getting the inheritance from the Bible, and we're getting to share that with our elder brother uh, w- w- with Christ. My learning continued until May the 3rd, 1998. On May the 3rd, 1998, I went to preach as I normally do that Sunday. My mom and dad, uh had just celebrated their 58th anniversary i believe it was but they were not in church that sunday morning that's odd and as soon as the service was over i got a, a note my dad had gone to the hospital he didn't want to bother me during the services so they waited till afterward and uh a, a friends of mine marty and renee dean overheard the fact i was being told and said you got to leave i always greet people until the last person leaves they said you got to leave the church now we're driving you to the hospital something may not be good got to the hospital. I was with dad a very short time when all of a sudden a lot of things suddenly went wrong and we heard the word code blue, the phrase code blue. And at 5 p.m. that day, dad graduated to heaven. Now, mom is on this call right now. As a matter of fact, she's 101, as I've said to you many times and told you. But she and I were there with dad uh, as, as this happened. Once dad was removed out of my life, Due to the fact he was such a wonderful earthly father, he was godly. He was consistent. He was loving. He was firm. He had a proper form of Holy Spirit-based authoritarianism in a healthy way, a healthy form of it. I obeyed him. I I respected him. I honored him, and he was an exceptionally gifted father, anointed father, just as my mother is exceptionally gifted mother as well. But when dad was removed out of my life by virtue of him graduating to heaven I suddenly realized that I had in some respects unknowingly assigned roles to my earthly father that really belonged to my heavenly father and I'd never become quite as reliant on my heavenly father as I should have as long as my earthly father was there and I had to start reconstructing what I understood about God, he is now my heavenly father. It's not just our God, but our God and our father, Billy Graham prays. And I had to see him in a new role because the one I had relied on in my earthly father was now removed. A number of years ago, I was pastoring, pastoring in another state. We were in a small Bible study uh, that our church was organized around small groups and uh what we back in that day we called cell groups and we were we were in a bible, one of the bible studies the many bible studies the church had and this lady i'll call her maria not her real name she suddenly blew up in kind of a fit of fit of anger so this church is unloving these people don't care for me you guys don't care for me uh I, I and she was really quite agitated well everybody in the room 12 of us or so everybody loved her and they cared for her deeply and they responded in tenderness, and began to minister to her, and we thought that took care of it. about three months or so later, same thing happened, she she blew up, said the same thing, the church is unloving, You you don't care for me, and she just took off, ripping into the church, people were shocked, very shocked the second time, but they ministered to her profoundly, probably three or four months passed, and it happened a third time, now people were starting to get a little gun shy, then it happened a fourth time, now we're up to maybe a year less than a year and a half into having four of these outbursts going on and people didn't know quite what to do and she convinced her husband to leave the church and they did uh, a number of months passed and she called me one day said uh jim i need your help pastor jim i need your help uh, we're going to such and such a church well i knew the church the pastor was a good friend of mine she knew that says i need you to call our pastor i said really what for he's not doing things right. I said, what does that mean? Well, he shouldn't be doing this, but he's doing that. He should be doing this. That. So I'd like you to call him and bring some correction for him. I said, let me get this straight. You left our church because we were doing things wrong. And you want the pastor who was doing things wrong to call the current pastor who's now doing things wrong and get, tell him to do things right. Did I get that correct? And she, by that time, is kind of embarrassed realizing how bad it sounds. And I said, "Maria," not a real name. I said, "Maria, the problem isn't your pastor at all. It's not that church, it's not your previous pastor, or your previous church. The problem is you." She was surprisingly open. Said, "What do you mean?" I said, "You suffer from ADD." She said, "Attention deficit disorder?" I said, "No, affirmation deficit disorder. You leak affirmation." No no matter how many layers of affirmation people bring to you, you leak. You just can't keep it. You lose it all. And you see as everybody is not loving to you and they're not the problem, nor are your pastors, nor your churches. You're the problem. You're leaking that affirmation. She was sensitive enough to say, well, what do I do? I said, you have an affirmation deficit disorder from your father. You have a father wound you're hurting you've always been that way and you're looking to everybody else you're looking to your husband you look to your pastors you look to your small groups at church you look to people around you to fill the void that only a father can fill and not a one of them can do it not one The void left by your earthly father is unfillable by any of them I, she says what do i do i said you have a spirit of abandonment an orphan spirit and it's going to have to minister to you. She says, now. I said, the only one is the heavenly father is going to have to start functioning in your life with your permission for you to be a recipient, to receive his love in such a way you see value in yourself by virtue of the fact that God loves you. That father wound can be healed. It can only be healed by one thing, the heavenly father himself. Abraham was seen in an intriguing way by God. God called him my friend. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 27, three times we find this scripture, three times. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, they're speaking to God about Abraham. And they said, hey, God, Abraham, your friend. That's 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. The second time it crops up is Isaiah 41, 8. Now, this time, it's God speaking about his friend, Abraham. And he says, Abraham, my friend. Now we're in the first person, Abraham, my friend. The next time it shows up, it's in the New Covenant, New Testament, James chapter 2, verse 23. And it's spoken of in the third person and said he was called God's friend, James chapter 2, verse 23. Let me ask you a, th- a question. Do you think Abraham's the only person in history God planned on being called his friend, being his friend? not on your life, God wants you the same way, he wanted Maria, that lady Maria, back in that state where I used to pastor, he wanted her to be his his friend, there's a song, I'm not a singer, but the song goes like this, as soon as I attempt to sing it, you'll see why I'm not a singer, Mm -hmm. I've kind of lost any capacity to sing anymore, it goes, um, oh love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. It's got three verses. The third verse goes like this. It's going to talk about ink, like the ocean was full of ink. It's going to talk about the skies as if it was parchment or paper we could write on. It's going to talk about stalks or quills, like every stalk, like every wheat stalk or corn stalk or any, any, any plant in the whole earth was a quill or a pen and it's gonna talk about every human being the whole earth's population is a scribe or a writer by trade now listen to it goes like this could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies a parchment made were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean's dry Nor could the scroll contain the whole, those stretched from sky to sky. Those of you in my age bracket recognize the song right away. Oh, Love of God, one of the most powerful songs ever. My dad used to love this song. Could we the ink with oceans fill? The entire ocean was ink. And were the scars the skies of parchment made? All the skies was nothing but paper. Where every stalk, every blade of grass on earth was a pen, a writing pen. And all 7 billion people on the earth were writers by trade or occupation. If that was the case, to to write the love of God would drain the entire ocean dry nor could the scroll that the whole heavens of all be paper the scroll could it contain the whole it says a message of love to god those stretched from sky to sky it, it would be an awful lot of writing it would be a lot of writing it would be a very thick book where was this verse I've Got a story behind this verse they you know who wrote verses one and two the third verse was found penciled on the wall of a patient's room in what we used to call an insane asylum. Insane asylum, it was a psychiatric hospital where they locked people up. And after he died and was taken away, they found these words written on the wall of that psychiatric ward. I don't know who the guy was, but boy, he understood something that most of us don't possibly grasp. Um, he didn't need to be locked up. He needed to be set free and proclaiming what he knew. I'm an acquaintance uh, up in Orange County. He's an apolo- apologist, great speaker, Greg Kukul, speaks uh, at the high school campuses and stuff. And he used to stand before high school students and college students, and he would say, uh, I know something about all of you. You don't know I know about you. Boy, we get very quiet in the student body right there in the auditorium is i know you don't feel like you measure up you feel inferior you know why you feel inferior because you are you know why you are there's a reason for it's it got a name it's called sin but i've got good news there's healing and forgiveness from that sin you don't have to feel like that anymore if we could be recipients of this love of god the transformation capabilities are staggering. My wife and I, we, we I preached today at, at, at Awaken Church here near our home, two services this morning. I'm not on the staff of a church currently, but we attend there. We have six campuses. And I just finished my third round preaching on, on all uh, six campuses, uh, total 12, actually 13 services uh, over the last few weeks. And one of them, we were up in Salt Lake City And we were this young couple, and they've been in that role, a wonderful couple. All these churches are led by some remarkable couples, but we were there in this with a couple. So, like I said, they've always been in the pastoral ministry as solo pastors, lead pastors, I should say, for about a year or so. And so we got to visiting with them. We'd never met them before. We were having a meal with them the night before, Saturday night. We got to visiting about the joys, delights, and the pain of pastoring. And in the course of it, I talked about, I said, One of your challenges is you tie your value as a pastor to how many attended on the previous Sunday. That is not a good thing. Most pastors who resign, resign on a Monday. That's the day they resign. You know why? Because they're disappointed in the attendance on Sunday. You know what the problem is? Because they have tied their value, their self-worth, How many are showing up, or how many are not showing up? Now, I said to this couple, I said, I had the same struggle. I was in hopes after 49 years of pastoring. I really wanted to get to the place where I did not tie my value based upon how many showed up to hear me preach, but I tied my value to the foot of the cross. What God had done in terms of loving me, agaping me, manifested through Jesus Christ and his giving of his life in an excruciating manner. Excruciating, ex-of, uh, cross, excruciating means of the cross. The most, most, most horrific pain one could have is being hung on a cross. Excruciating, that's what the word means, of the cross. And here was God so manifest his love so much that even his son went through excruciating pain to make his love known for me. And here I am after pastoring almost five decades, still tying my value to how many people showed up the day before. Rosemary and I were talking about this and we were kind of laughing about it. We're planning the future conference and I was doing it again. I was tying my value to how many people signed up for the future conference. That's not a good thing. I want to tie my, I want to get to the point where I tie my value to the foot of the cross and no other thing tells me. The same struggle we as pastors have, every one of you do too, because the enemy is whispering in your ear, you're not good enough. You're not fast enough. You're not smart enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not muscular enough. You don't have a nice enough house. You don't have nice nice clothes. Your car is not nice enough. You're not smart enough. You don't have a good enough education. Your income's not good. Your pension's not good. You over and over here, you don't measure up. You don't measure up. Then the enemy will take you to the next level. And he wants to compare you to somebody who in your mind, you you think is better than you. Oh, then you really feeling really crummy. Comparison. Paul says, don't fall into that trap. It's a struggle. The sanctification journey is a struggle for us all. I've been very candid, very transparent. Apparently. I wanted, before I ended pastoral ministry, to get to the point where it made no difference how many showed up or not. I can't honestly say I got there, but I will say this I am eager to understand what I wrote all those years ago in this master's thesis. And, and, and the, so that it gets. Across the heart, you can't see this book again. Here's the pop, God will use you. I'm in hopes that somehow we'll get to the point where I can understand God, actually God's amazing love for you is the, is, the, is the correct title I want. God's amazing love for you is the correct title on that one. I want to get to the point where I can grasp and understand that my value comes from one thing. Why did I tell my buddy John Neal I don't want to speak at that conference? Because I felt like he should have my two friends speak, who speak from a void, who speak from the father wound, because I thought they could do a better job. And John came to me afterwards and said, no, you needed to be the one because you come from the place where you've walked in the feeling the love of a father. And you're on that journey where you're receiving the love of your heavenly father. Our God and our Father, help us all to quit listening to that whispering in the ear. That whispering in the ear that keeps continually saying, you don't measure up. And instead, listen to that still, quiet voice of the Holy Spirit, which says so clearly, you are my beloved. You're my beloved son, in whom I'm so well pleased. You're my beloved daughter, in whom I'm so well pleased. Or even as I'm speaking right now, may I fill in the void, may Rosemary and I fill in the void to to some people who maybe didn't have a good father or a good mother. Maybe they they suffer from a father wound, maybe even a mother wound, And, and may somehow, what i've shared accelerate substantially their healing supernaturally that the holy spirit shines the spotlight of agape love up on them in such a way that they recognize that they are valuable just by virtue of that alone being a recipient of the god of god's love creates value that can't be exceeded in any other way you can't get more valuable than god of the whole universe choosing to love you each one of you they're listening right now so i pray that healing upon us in jesus mighty name yeah. i grew up in, in going to church all my life and so we tried to follow the practices the rituals the obligations and so forth but it, i was 21 years old when it before anyone came up to me face to face and said God loves you and it was it was so astounding to hear those words and it went penetrated right from my head into my heart so I want to say to all of you face to face God loves you God loves you I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that Well-Versed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Thank you for listening to the Well-Versed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.